Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attention, attention. Uh, Hello there, listeners of We Have Ways of Making You Chalk, the Chalk Valley History Festival edition of We Have Ways of Making You Talk, where we've been uh, more digressed and more tangential than usual. We've had all sorts of interesting conversations spread across big, big history to little tiny history. And now we're going to, we're going to, well, we're going to, this for me. And this is our last one. It's our last one. But but this for me is this. I'm 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 gonna um, I'm gonna shut up in this one because I have no idea. This is something I know nothing about, which i um, which and to be honest, James, to get me to admit that is quite an achievement. So so well done. I'm accused of, in my family of being a monstrous bullshitter and an expert and everything. So so uh, for me to lay down my arms like this in this situation is quite a thing. So we are joined today by um, Andrew Ziminski. Now, I, I think, uh, James, you should do the introductions because... Uh, uh... Uh, yes, very happy to. Andrew's a fine fellow and he's a stonemason and I'm always in awe of these artisans, people who can do incredible things with their hands. And Andrew's also written an amazing book called The Stonemason, A History of Building Britain. Uh, It's a personal journey through stonemasonry and architecture in Britain, from church architecture to the ancients. Talks about Stonehenge, West Kennet, Longbarrow, uh, but he's also a closet listener to We Have Ways. And you have some interesting family, interesting, because your father fought on the other side. (laughs) Well, yeah. Hi, Al. Hi, James. Yeah, yeah, Dad's, Dad's background was a bit of a mystery to me until he died or until my mother died and I was next of kin. And I wrote to um, the Polish section at RAF North Holt. Dad was Polish and uh, he, he died 10 years ago. And so I, I got this wonderfully photocopied sequence of documents relating to my father's history, which uh, well, raised an eyebrow, I have to say. So he was, um, he was conscripted into the... So he was in Poland. He was conscripted in 1943 into... Um, German army. Um, he was in northern France where he was guarding V2 installations and um, by some deduction I, I sort of uh, discovered that he was working at something called La Coupole uh, yeah. which is where they're going to fire the V2s. They're, you know they could put together the V2s it's next to the main, line, main rail track um, and then use that as a firing point on London and elsewhere. And I, I can remember as a kid visiting this place and Dad never mentioned it. You know, we happened to turn up there and have a picnic, you know, on the top of this giant concrete dome. And Dad just sort of went off and shuffled around. And, you know, this was tremendously interesting for me, but uh, never mentioned it. So, again, full of full of surprises. So he, um, he was only 16 or 17 at the time. And he, uh, by 1944, this was called an Ersatz, Ersatz Battalion because the original battalion had been destroyed at Falaise. Uh, he got captured by Poles in southern on the 8th of September 44 uh, and he was in a pretty bad way because I've got all his medical documents he was operated on in a field hospital so he was by, wounded was he badly wounded yeah well he had this big chunk taken out uh, missing out the back of his calf and he said it was in a motorbike accident but it didn't really ring true so it's just really interesting how he really wanted to you know keep a lid on it um, and you'd never you know he was he just wanted a quiet life he just wanted to keep his head down not really be Polish. He didn't have any Polish friends. 
he was quite he was happy but you know self-contained like so many so of so but Andrew what, so once he was once he was once he was captured by the poles yeah uh, he was in a bad way so he, he was he sent then sent to britain sent to england on a ship or on a, on a kind of hospital uh, ship or something so he was, he was operated on and he was sent to POW Camp 185, which is in Gloucestershire. Then he was sent back out. You know, they basically said, you're going to join us. He went, all right. So he then fought, then fought with the Poles? Well, fought. I, I know he did end up in Wilhelmshaven where the Poles took the surrender of the, very satisfyingly, took the surrender of the, uh, uh, what was left of the German fleet um, or the yeah. Nazi fleet. So, um, yeah, and that's, that's it. Uh, it's a very useful guy in in Werner, Mr. Werner in Belgium, who really helped me out to place where Dad had been. So with the the um, La Coupole connection and all mm. that sort of thing. But Dad was an expert in building with concrete. You know, our, our old house was concrete everything. You know, extension, <laughs> door handles, flower pots. You know, he was he was, he was mad for it. And uh, they, were ca- they were carrying on doing dragon's teeth in Scotland after the war, he, you know, he was saying. So uh, a lot of my childhood was coloured by going around these weird, weird places associated with his, you know, his past that I didn't really... I also wrote to, um, I shouldn't really say this, I wrote to the uh, uh, German uh, record in Berlin and yeah. um, uh, they, they told me about the battalion that Dad was in and all that. Ersatz Battalion 211. I still owe them uh, eight euros fifty, but they can whistle for that. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so when did you? But your dad became a stonemason, didn't he? Or have I got well, that wrong? Yeah, no, that's completely right. So he, um, after so at the closure of the war, he was offered a commission, but he'd seen enough, and um, he could earn twelve pounds a week working on hydroelectric scheme. So blasting the tunnels under mountains. So he, you know, he was good with the explosives. So he was in charge of a team that was on the face blasting under Scottish tunnels. Um, and too many of his. So this was mainly Highlanders, Irish, uh, lots yeah. of Poles, um, no English. He said pointedly to me. I remember. Uh, but but too <laughs> many too many of his mates were getting squashed. You know, there collapses all the time, and um, he had the sense to uh, take up an opportunity to work as a granite stonemason um mm. so he's he was working on the, uh, the like the the water openings the the outflow of the actual uh, installations themselves cutting voussoirs and okay we're going to this one you know dam hydroelectric scheme and i like the permanency of that and he would he would take me to the quarry and explain how it worked and you know uh so yeah the rest is history really so, so that's where you got your interest of stonemasonry from as well, was it? From, 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 from him. Yeah, I mean that. I think that was a seed. But I'd always been interested in the in the past. And when, you know, I was so rubbish at school, and and there was a building in our town that was being taken down by the Wilden Down Open Air Museum in Singleton, and yeah. um, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd watch this being um, slowly vandalised when I was a kid. Quite enjoyed it, and um, and. But, but then our history teacher said, oh, you know, why don't you get involved in that? And I, that was it. I just I did used to just bunk off school the whole time and um, uh, got involved in that. And then the moment the moment this building was put back up a few years later, I just volunteered at the museum and that was that. So so I'm a I'm a sort of traditional I'm a stonemason, traditional builder. So, I, you know, modern 
Well, I know about cement, obviously, but uh, you know, modern gypsum <laughs> plasters and plasterboard and all that. Don't know. So, are you are you keeping working methods alive? Then is that what, what one of the things you're you're doing? Yeah, I mean, which, pre- always, which which always sounds to me a bit a bit like a, a bright idea rather than a sort of practical thing to do. Yeah, you're completely right. But I mean, you know, there tr- there is um, a big role for traditional craft skills. Uh, in working with historic buildings you you know you can't unpick these buildings uh with modern techniques and modern materials but that said if i'm working in a workshop i you know i use angle grinders and air tools and you know i've got to earn a living i've got to be realistic so everything's done on a price everything's competitively tendered so i've got to be realistic but when i'm on site i use traditional lime mortar which is where gluing stones together and uh, lime washing and you know traditional materials so um, and these techniques, I mean, uh, they're properly ancient, some of them, aren't they? Yeah. Because I mean, after all, you, you were talking about concrete earlier on. It, concrete, concrete, for instance, has been around for a very, very long time, hasn't it, actually? I mean, the, the Romans used concrete, didn't they? Yeah. I, I thought I knew nothing about this, but there's, there's one thing I know. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> there's, um, there's, there's a posh hotel near us called the Newt, and they're building a Roman villa there at the moment. They, hmm. uh, you know, reproduction Roman villa. They found the the foundations and I'm making this type of Roman um, floor there called Opus Signinum which yeah. you can travel from you know travel from the waist of Syria to Hadrian's Wall and you will find this sort of imperial standard of uh, of, of mortar flooring and walling and pointing and it has um, it's basically lime which is fired limestone in a you know you fire limestone in a kill and at a lower temperature <clears throat> um, and then to that you add crust uh, terracotta tiles as as something called a pozzolana which is uh, 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 that makes it set underwater so uh, no no opus signinum no roman harbors no aqueducts no arches no domes so you know it's roman uh, uh, roman cement allowed the roman empire to expand yeah much like concrete yeah. allowed the german empire to expand because yeah. i've been to uh, uh, um to herculaneum in, in israel and there's a there's an under, you know, an underwater constructed concrete harbour there, and uh, uh, you know we've shown around that, and it's that's an amazing site with hippodrome and everything, and and you, you know you have to get your head around the idea. They knew exactly what they were doing with this material two thousand years ago, didn't they? They were in fact masters with it, uh, g- genius builders with it. Exactly, it's that you know it's that standardisation. Yeah, it's like with with German cement mixes, they were standardised. You know, like the 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 cement mix in the wall slayer and the Atlantic wall was the same, but obviously towards the end of the war, the quality of that cement was was lacking. You know. Yeah, <laughs> but but Andrew, okay, so did, I, I want to go on to kind of really ancient stuff in a minute, but I but I okay, I want to build a bunker on on the you know on the buffs above Omaha Beach in Normandy. Tell me how I do it. You know, what is the process of building a bunker? Because no, I mean, the Romans might have loved might have loved concrete back in back in the day, but in the twentieth century, there was no one that loved concrete more than the Nazis. I mean, they were just obsessed with it. You think, I mean, you think about the gargantuan edifices that are still around all over the place. Are they Nazi megastructures, James? By any <laughs> what they are actually Nazi megastructures. Oh, yeah, yeah, and some pretty mega megastructures, to be fair. <laughs> Although actually, not that many megastructures on uh, on the Atlantic on the, the Atlantic Wall at Normandy. But just say I want to build a build a bunker. How do I do it? What's the process? So the secret to a successful bunker is to um, ensure a ready supply of. So, so you have to have all the materials in place. 
ready to go and all the labor and all the shuttering and all the steel reinforcement everything's got to be ready to go you can't so what's the shutter, shuttering it's shuttering is that that's the wooden planks you put around it to kind of the like the it's like a mold effectively isn't it's it? exactly so so with that with our diddly our diddly little pillboxes we have over here they're basically uh sh they're shuttered with bricks so you know you see the the pillboxes on the stop lines always brick brick covered aren't they but what the contractors would do is build the bricks first and then fill it with an infill of cement of varying thicknesses but but the nazis they you know they were way ahead of the game um and they would uh construct the shuttering so this is the the wood ply that goes all around much the same as that you know every type of modern uh you know all, all the tower blocks that are going up in manchester and the city of london you know it's all the same technique it's basically carpentry and poured a poured wet material but yeah so, still... so, you, so that would would that would literally would be a, a mold effectively so you have shuttering on either side of the thickness of yeah. the wall yeah so it's a, and, you, and, and then you have those rods don't you what, what are they called i can't remember what they're called yeah just reinforcing bars still reinforcement reinforcing yeah, bars yeah. yeah rebars that's it and rebars, then, and yeah, then pretty good. yeah and, and you put those in yeah. and then you literally just pour it in but you have to a, a bunker won't work if it's not poured in one go um, so the, the, the moment you have a day work joint, so, you know, all the slaves go off and, you know, uh, have, have a tea break, um, or, or there's a bombing raid or something. If, if there's, um, a, a, an interruption to the process, it, yes, it, it exactly. puts a fault line in basically, it exactly. the entire structure. Yeah. And, uh, if, you know, I've seen this in certain, you know, you can see where they've had to leg it or whatever, and, you know, it's been hit <laughs> by something and, uh, what's the, you were talking about it the other, the other week where the, uh, HMS Ajax hit the um hit the big guns. oh and long uh, yeah, yeah, and long Sumer, yeah. That, yeah i've seen that and uh, there's a bunker there that's that's shifted just so, very slightly sideways so it wasn't cast in one go you know so uh, really yeah they, <laughs> that's they, amazing yeah they really fucked that up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course Brilliant. for someone who says you know nothing about this you're 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 showing a little bit of knowledge here well, I'm well. It's being explained to me quite brilliantly. Um, the, the, so, so basically, there's there's some bloke with a, with an enormous uh, uh, bowl of concrete or mixer with concrete, and they blow a whistle and they pour it all in, and, and they hope not to be interrupted, and they leave it to set. And yeah. but how long does this concrete take to set? Is it like several days, or is it? Uh, does uh, it, it or is there a reagent that can speed up or slow down the the process and all that sort of thing? Well, you can, you know, you can add fair, fairy liquid to make it more workable and slow slow it down. But I don't know what their equivalent was out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's that's what we we use these days. It makes it more um, uh, aero like. It puts more air. It's an air in trainer, adding yeah. de detergent. Um, really? But the that's yeah, wow. but, but the uh, I, I remember they used to sabotage. Certain groups used to sabotage German concrete by putting sugar in, and that was thought yeah. to weaken weaken it as it hardened. But it actually, had the opposite effect; it did make it stronger. Um, really? Yeah. So, what are we talking about? A few days, a couple of days to try? Oh well, so for for set so um, a good sized bunker could take could take well over a week to make, um, and and there'd be fifty or sixty people working on that. You know, uh, carpenters, slaves, labourers, steel reinforcing people yeah. so you know this is just constantly going 24 7 there was no let up um you know as you say the moment you get that weakness off you go they'd have to put a steel floor in um quite early on um 
so so they they, they didn't generally put floors in but they um when they were pouring it um as the as the weight of the mix pressed down on the sort of lower mix that was hardening it would sort of balloon out the sides so they then introduced steel floors uh to suppress that that bubbling but all but with their uh cement bags they would uh push that in the shuttering and and then you quite often see these sort of you know it breaks up the surface so it's less smooth so it's you know better camouflaged and you see that one of the things they one of the things they've got the problems they've got in normandy is they just don't have the transport so getting getting the materials to where they want to build it is is quite tricky and so you see this massive drop off in quality in, of, of bunkers in in Normandy, and they're just they're using too much sort of pebbles and you know yeah the best the best concrete the, the best concrete uh, is crushed granite from comes from somewhere else in France. So like you're saying, using using pebbles on the beach uh, is just rubbish. Yeah, so the quality drops in everything yep. towards the end of the world, isn't it? So. Yeah, Andrew, we're, we're recording this on the eve of the summer solstice because it's a leap year, so longest days tomorrow, the twentieth of June. And um, uh, you and I are kind of sort of plotting about the possibility of, of going up to Stonehenge to see the sun rise or not, as the case may be, if it's too yeah. cloudy. But you've done Jim, quite a lot of study James, of Stonehenge. Well, hold. There's an image there I need, we need to just address for the regular listener. Are you wearing a loincloth for this? What, what's the... <laughs> I'm in a full druid the, kit. The, what, yeah, I mean, do you have a druid kit packed away well, somewhere? Or are you okay. going to be wearing You're going to be wearing khaki of some description? <laughs> I've, I think Stonehenge is about 12 miles as the crow flies from where, I, where I'm recording this at the moment. And I have... I have never ever got up for the summer solstice, and I just thought Shut right, up. this year it's lockdown. I'm going to do it, um, and Daisy's going to come with me. Ned's Ned's crying off. He he's, he's wants to go and see his mates tonight, so he's he's crying off. But um, but Andrew's been quite a few times in his life, and um, you've done quite a lot of work on Stonehenge, haven't you? You've done quite a lot of um, of study of it and how they did what they did, and you've worked out how they got the stones there and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought it was fascinating, your the, the bit that you... Uh, um, it's just amazing, Stonehenge, isn't it? Because it really is a remarkable structure. It's not just it's not just that, that kind of... You know, when you actually break down what it is, it is truly, truly remarkable. Oh, well, yeah. then what is it? <laughs> it's a giant scientific instrument where the, where the humans are the moving parts. So uh, that's quite a good answer, isn't it? I'm pleased it's with that. It's amazing. I'll, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll buy that for a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> so, so by uh, you know, we're all familiar with the right, the point where the sun rises on solstice, midsummer solstice. But more importantly, is the you know, there's an axis line that runs through the stone circle and henge itself uh, that's aligned on the uh, midwinter sunset, and that's yeah. the most important date in the Neolithic and early bronze age you know in their agricultural year so it's about establishing with accuracy and some celebration you know the, the best point to start their animal husbandry or whatever they did stone angel which strikes me is that you know like if, um you have these images of fur clad savages dragging these massive stones over you know through forest and over open downland but you know, there's a the River Avon is a dead straight line, runs on a dead straight line from Pusey pretty much to Stonehenge. And all all the fields around, you know, on the downlands around uh Pusey were just littered with sarsens, you know, and they are still there in places, these great sarsen trains. So it's, it just seems sensible to me that they would have put it on a river that was three meet you know, it's the River Avon is a piddly little thing now, but uh, at its upper reaches, but it would have been three metres higher. 
water table was three meters higher back then so um, they would definitely have rafted and punted it down of course the water table would have been even higher in the winter so well of course i mean of course they would because that's the easiest way to do it isn't it i mean it, it, the 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 uh, uh, the, that that kind of uh, after all we don't think of rivers the way the way people did uh, 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 in the past do we the, the, the rivers have become uh, they're not a means of transport anymore the, the, we've forgotten about that haven't we so it's an it's anachronistic not to cons- or a historical not to consider that as a way of moving the stones isn't it yeah w- wouldn't you say yeah ex- ex- exactly i mean that was you know the the river avon's one of the major communication routes at that time for moving yeah. you know, for movement of people and ideas and livestock and you know flints uh and the thing about avebury which i'm which i think i'm more interested in avebury because i've done a lot more work there over the years than at, you know around stonehenge we we worked at the united reform chapel which is the only uh, christian building built within a stone circle and uh, that was built from stones from you know the for previously stones that were standing that they smashed up the puritans smashed up because um they didn't like uh, them yeah yeah they didn't like all that paganism but the earlier medieval church they built without you know it was outside the henge so you know the saxons were wary of this place back at that time and, what, and what's avebury then if if stonehenge is a scientific instrument with human beings as the moving parts what's avebury i mean you've got a whole complex there you know it's a great piece of landscape art really um but i think it's just you know it's it's down to s- s- luck and circumstance you know the ridgeway runs right past you know which is the the one of the principal uh trackways in prehistory you know, it's the watershed for three rivers: the River Avon that goes to Bristol, the Avon that goes south to the Channel, and uh, you know comes out Hengisbury, and the and the Thames. You know, the headwaters of the Thames rise there. You know, uh, just by Silbury Hill. So you know, everything was focusing there. And there, in Southern England, there are no that part of Southern England. There are no other large deposit, or uh, there are no other really solid stones. It's all chalk, isn't it? so uh they're going to go crikey this place is a bit special and it still has a special vibe to it today you know so mm. what work what work have you done on on uh on that site then uh, what what what, what so, sort of stuff okay so um the the united reformed church was absolutely chock full of dry rot uh, and it had been pointed with an inappropriate cement mortar so uh and it had been rendered inside with cement as well and cement as i'm sure many of you are uh listeners and correspondents will know is the is is death to old buildings it's non-permeable so it doesn't allow old allow old buildings to breathe yeah um so uh there we you know we took all this hideous render that had only been applied a few years before and uh uh reused it uh, re repaired it with uh, replastered it and repointed with lime mortar so pretty run-of-the-mill sort of buildery stuff but there are lots of areas of collapse on these outside walls and they were built of sarsen and over the years, I've, you know, Andy, my business partner, and I collect, you know, you see a pile of sarsens that the farmer's swept to the side of his field. We go in there and get them because, you know, you can't go to home base and get them. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I've got a good pile in. Sarsen buildings are not, they're really damp inside. So, you know, most of the cottages around Avebury and around that part of the world are not, you know, furniture tends to rot in there. <laughs> strangely so it's not a great material to so it's like the ancients had the last word you know uh, they... <laughs> i don't know anything is this we're talking uh, uh, uh pro, here we go primary school bronze age stone age iron age what we're we talking here 
<laughs> so, um, so the uh, okay. So the earliest the earliest building I've ever worked on is at the West Kennet Long Barrow, which yeah. is three thousand seven hundred and fifty BC, Dear God. Or, or thereabouts. That's 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 Stone Age. Yeah. So that's that's Neolithic. So there's Paleolithic, which is sort of yeah. time of hunter gatherers. There's yeah. uh, Mesolithic, which is the sort of transition to roaming. Uh, communities to slightly more settled uh, and then the Neolithic you have the introduction of farming and that whole whole package so settlements yeah. and, and all yeah. that so be, because farming was such a successful concept effectively the people had time on their hands to create these amazing structures yeah. um, and then just so a Avebury predates Stonehenge I think there was a bit of an arms race going on between a couple of tribes because they were both sort of going up at the same time but uh, and then and then Avebury fell out of fashion and Stonehenge really kicked off around about the time a, a community from the Low Countries came this way called the uh, Beaker people. So uh, burial, burial changed from family interments in graves like the West Kennet Longbarrow that were venerated for hundreds. You know, West Kennet Longbarrow is in use for a thousand years. Um, and then it was sealed up by the Beaker people. They've, you know, they put these stones over the front. And uh, when Stuart Piggott, the great archaeologist, excavated the site, he found a single beakerish uh, piece of beaker pot under these, like it had been placed there purposely, saying, "Right, this is our time now. Your ways are gone." So there was a big change in burial practice at that time. So it was more uh, solitary and personal. People were buried with grave goods. Their beakers. Hence the name. As that developed, so as Stonehenge developed, Avebury is just a bunch of rocks, basically, levered out the ground and put into position. There's no, there's no indication that they actually, uh, there's no astronomical alignments at Avebury yeah. or anything like that. It's just stones lifted in position and, you know, to create this extraordinary thing. So it's more of a mystery, really. But Stonehenge has a definite purpose um, and it's, it's built with architecture in mind. You know, the, all, all the um, it's built with a degree of emphasis, which is a cl classical concept. So the shoulders of the uprights um, just pop in to counteract the illusion of concavity between the upright stones. Anyway, I yeah, could go yeah. on. No, 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 no. It's, fa no, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. And we're back. It is is Stonehenge? Um, does it attract a lot of attention because it's big? Are there other? Are there other? Because I know not. I mean, I really do know nothing about this. Is is it because it's so enormous that it that it ha it's had all our attention? Are there other sites in the UK that perform similar sort of astrological functions? Just uh, haven't got Stonehenge's glamour and um, size and all that sort of thing. Is it? Are we right to see it as so unique and special? Is it? Is it normal? N normal for that? time if you sort of Br if brilliant you that's that's such a great question because stonehenge is an absolute one-off and uh, i have absolutely no idea why there are not stonehenges all over europe you know people people were traveling to to stonehenge from you know bringing trade goods from from across the british isles from across europe and uh why why was that why was its concept and its scientific purpose not translated what i thought was fascinating was that there's this understanding of perspective on stonehenge yeah um if if you actually stand within 
the circle, which unfortunately none of us are going to be doing this year, uh, and look up. If you look at the lintels, you know, the horizontal stones, they, um, they're not carved with a flat face. They're carved with a very slight curve along the front and back faces, but they also um, are carved um, so that the top part projects further than the bottom part. And that's, uh, that's to make them look even higher than they, than they are inside. And again, that's a sort of neoclassical concept. So it was so groundbreaking. And the fact that they used carpet, you know, carpentry joints to hold it all together. So these were like carpenter, mason, farmer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but maybe it went over budget. Maybe it didn't work. Maybe that's the reason there aren't any anymore, you know, because yeah. you are, if you're talking about something that's, that, that there's clearly... I mean, you, you said earlier on that, you know, the farming so successful, people have time on their hands. It's that they can afford to do this and they're prepared to spend money on it. Because I always think when you look at, when you, look at you know, medieval cathedrals, how expensive those buildings must have been. Uh, uh, and this is, this is the same thing, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, arguably, if it, because after all, because after all, religion, you know, if we want to call it modern religion, sort of is so keyed in to the seasons anyway, actually. You know, yeah. uh, and our solstice is exactly as you say. The, the winter one's the most important one because you, you know you're coming out of the, um, the, the winter rather than plunging further into it, you know. Is it, these, these people, they not only had time on their hands, they had the money to do this. They could afford to do this, which is quite extraordinary, isn't it? That you've got a, a rich society in effect, haven't you? Well, it, it really suggests a very strong community as well. I mean, there is a school of thought that individual... Because all, all the uprights of Stonehenge and, and the lintels, as, as I've just said, they're all dressed. So that means yeah. they've been... The surfaces have been pounded away to give them a relatively flat surface. And that would have been... There would have been thousands of people employed on that. But but the thing is, um, sarsen is, uh, is a sandstone... And the moment you start working sandstone, you, you create loads of sandstone dust, which will kill you. So you get this horrible disease called silicosis. Yes. So, um, so obviously uh, they're working as family groups. And I, and I think just so many people died in the construction of it. So it took the understanding of how to do it with, with them, really. Uh, the one good thing that may come out of COVID-19 is that they might abandon this insane idea to build a tunnel underneath it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, especially where the uh, exit portal on the uh, uh, west side of things is uh, so ginormous and lit. And, you know, Joy Stonehenge is it's quite a dark, you know, I've slept around there quite a lot on top of, of you know, Bush Barrow and all sorts. And, uh, you know, you get dark skies there. You can see the Milky Way. And there's no way, there's no way that uh, the exit portals are going to be anything but uh, c cultural vandalism, in my opinion, you know. Oh, well, I totally agree. And once you've pulled out all that soil, once you've dug that ramp down and ramp up again, it's gone. You know, it's gone forever. Uh, and huge amounts of archaeology taken away from it. And, and you've just carved up what is a world heritage yeah. site and it's got to be absolutely clear about this those planned ramps are within yeah. the world heritage site yeah. area they're not outside it they're within yeah. it um, uh, um, and is this to this to save five minutes off uh yeah uh, which won't work anyway because the a303 isn't dual carriageway all the way no, so no, no, all you're no. doing is kicking it down the down the yeah. down the road i mean yeah. it's, it's just a terrible idea yeah. but anyway hopefully it won't happen now well. um but 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 andrew well we've talked about stonehenge we talked about the romans a little bit but but You've also done some pioneering work on um, on church architecture, 
And I thought it was fascinating what you were saying about the origins of of the great Gothic cathedrals and and <laughs> the fact that. Well, I mean, no, yeah, yeah. where that where that design came from, I mean, it's really interesting. Well, again, it's about you know one of the things I'm really trying to hammer home in my book, The Stonemason, published by John Murray's, um, is. Um, <laughs> well done. The whole of human, the great human experiment is basically down to an exchange of ideas and cultures. And if you, if there's no architecture of Islam, there is no Gothic architecture. If there is no uh, Imperial Roman architecture, there is no architecture of Islam. So it's just, you know, it's just a constant handing on of the, of the baton, really. And uh, I absolutely love that. I mean, I've been, you know, I've travelled... But, but where do you think that comes from? Um, what War... Uh, you know the you know the only reason we have Gothic architecture, one could argue, is is because of the Crusades, um, and they, uh, you know, and that that could be said not only for churches but for uh, you know castle design. If you, if you want to see a, a Crusader castle, there's no point going to Syria or you know the Lebanon. You know, go to Welsh borders. That's just you know all those oubliettes and all that sort of stuff. It's all taken, translated from uh, the architecture of Islam. Uh, but they, you know they got that from someone else. You know, you know, that, like the Great Dome at Hagia Sophia. You know, that was a, yeah. started as a church, didn't it? Um, and that, yeah, well. that that influenced all sorts of dome the dome architecture of Islam, which in turn influenced the spire architecture of Gothic, uh, the Gothic movement. So, you know, but, but because uh, because after all, the, the the world when you have a universal church with the Catholic Church. Which stretches from from the British Isles all the all the way to Syria, the ideas are going to are going to move, aren't they? That, you know, and not just via trade routes, which is a everyone speaks Latin. Ideas are interchangeable and move around in a way that again, it's ahistorical to forget that to think of the to think of countries as I mean that you know France in itself doesn't even exist, for instance, in the way we conceive it. That all these that, that so of course these ideas would move in these ways. After all, and you know. Tom Tom's written about this the idea that Islam comes through very much self-conscious reflection of Rome and what the Roman Empire is is about and able to do so and of course they're rubbing alongside each other the whole time that of course these ideas are going to are going to seep seep into one another aren't they I mean it, it it's funny that it, in a way it's almost funny that you need to, you need to state this uh, if you see what I mean yeah but it's it's interesting I did a um I was interviewed by a uh, really good interview by a well-known broadsheet newspaper that's uh, the precursor to the telephone, and um, <laughs> the oh my god the uh, the I, I was accused of virtue virtue signalling yeah. and, and being woke because yeah. I was talking about this. I mean, fucking hell! Give me a break, man. I'm just telling it as it is you know you yeah. mouldy old twats just shut up <laughs> sorry just really know, it's just so pointless i'm just you know i'm a working guy I've, my eyes are open i've got an opinion that's my opinion i'm not you know yeah. flagging up people. no but it but it but i think it, i think the, the problem is is a misunderstanding of cultures and how they work the idea that they operate kind of in sort of isolate in islands I mean, it, and after all when cultures try to do that they end up for instance that you know the inquisition in spain becomes so powerful that spent spanish universities fall behind spanish shipbuilding technique falls behind as a result of the inquisition so you know but by the by the by the napoleonic wars the spanish navy is hopelessly out of date because they've had such an intellectual clampdown on their technology they're not allowed to trade ideas with anybody 
that they end up behind. So this idea that this idea that cultures occupy, and you know, in Spain after all is the great um, interface between Islam and Christianity uh, it, 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 culturally and technologically. You know, until until um, until fourteen ninety two when everyone when they're all yeah. thrown out, yeah. that the Muslims all thrown out. That that this this idea yeah. that cultures don't bleed into one another and don't swap and don't rub up, rub up. You know, and if you see a good idea. And you're if you've got any sense and you see a good idea, you nick it, don't you? That's the yeah. other. That's the other thing, you know. Especially if you're working in the defence, you know. If you think of castles as the defence sector, you know. If you think of it like that, of course you're going to. If it's an effective yeah. way of building a castle, of course you're going to nick it. And also because people want the snazziest, latest stuff. But it's, it's this is just how people. But it's the same with arches. Yeah, as exactly. Well, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, if you see an arch, you think, well, that arch, that's that's bloody useful, isn't yeah. it? Oh, I think I'll, I think I'll half inch that. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, the... you, you, you can see it in Bristol uh, at the cathedral. You can see that direct influence of uh, Islamic engineering and Islamic architecture in the Lady Chapel. Uh, there is a couple of monuments in there, and at St Mary Redcliffe in the great doorway, the great southern porch doorway. I mean, I've never seen a more wow. Islamic thing in my whole life. You know, and that's you know, Bristol's the you know trading in wine with that part of the world. Again, this exchange of ideas, booze, great, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if something's a new technique, and you're building, you're commissioning something, you want all the new, all the new uh, designs, don't you? And I mean, it's it's all quite, it's all quite. The thing is, is the thing is, is although it's all a long time ago, it's still people behaving the way people do, and also people who commission buildings behave the way they do now. You know, if you're building a skyscraper now, you want it to look. You want it to look uh, con- completely contemporary, and at the time, having a have a snazzy sort of Islamic arch or spire or whatever was was the same thing, wasn't it? Uh, basically, yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not too uh, sure about the uh, architecture of Dubai, to be honest. That's a bit ghastly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what I am sure about, though, is is the is the architecture of these cathedrals. And you know, you get off the you you arrive into Durham Station, for example, and you look at the castle and you look at the cathedral just dominating the whole town. It just completely f- seems to fill the sky, and that's in the 21st century. But imagine what that was like when that was built in, you know, whenever it was, you know, a thousand years ago. Uh, and the same with Salisbury, you know. Um, you you spent a lot of time working there, Andrew, and obviously it's my home cathedral town. You know, I look at Salisbury Cathedral, and, and you can do these amazing tower tours where you sort of walk over the vaults of vaulted ceiling, and and you go up the actual tower, and you can stare up the inside of of the spire. And I know you've actually gone to the very top of the spire, haven't you? But you look at that, and you think, Christ, you know, in the 14th century, how the hell did they do it? How on earth did they do something quite so complex without any kind of machinery whatsoever, without any any of the kind of modern techniques, that, well, not the modern tools and machinery that we, we have today? It is, it, And you just think, how could you have ever, you know, if you're a peasant from Salisbury, how could you have ever doubted the majesty and magnificence well, and, of God the, when you look at and that? And the bells would have been the loudest sound you'd ever heard in your life. The loudest sound there was. I guess, yeah. Because because yeah. that's the other thing, you know, our, our world of sound bears no relation to, to, to what... So if you've got this building that's literally touching the heavens and makes the loudest noise there is i mean how could you how could you i mean as you say jim how could you draw any other conclusion that the church was the church was right and was in charge and absolutely and the absolutely amazing thing about that spire is is not only is it unbelievably tall and and beautiful and delicate and and just a thing of wonder 
when you actually look when you when you're standing at the top of the t- so you've got the tower and then you've got the spire when you're at the top of the of the tower you're looking up inside the spire it's got this lattice work of wooden scaffolding going going up and you think oh that's so they just built it around that but actually i think i think i'm right in saying Andrew, that there's not a bit of stone that actually touches the woodwork you know the woodwork was was just a scaffolding thing so the heart of the spire is entirely freestanding that is amazing i mean it's absolutely amazing when, when was that finished 1420 or something wasn't it something like that. uh 13 13th, 13th something. no i think mean, i think it was started about 1330 uh i've got so many dates in my head i'm starting to lose you know i've hit i was 53 last anyway week. My brain's doesn't, it doesn't yeah. really matter but the, bo- <laughs> the bottom line is it's out of a long t- a long time ago yeah and and, and y- how on earth do they make that well the windlass that drew everything up is still in there which is a pretty mind-blowing thing and that was used until the 70s i remember the clock of work saying to you know get get stone up um and that you know that's one of and, and that's a great big wheel, isn't yeah, it? That's a great yeah. Big wheel. So so there's and you can move it with one hand, can't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's so supremely well engineered and, and designed that, you know, like you say, you can just move it with one hand. But it's that what what's what's connecting everything we've been talking about, which I haven't really thought thought about before, was the use of timber. You're you know you, you've just been saying, James, about the use of timber in as scaffolding. You know. The, if you look at uh, pictures of the bombed La Coupole, the amount of timber that's everywhere and, you know, bunker construction and the amount of timber used to build Stonehenge, you know, carpenters have been at a premium since since the earliest times for, you know, support work and shuttering work and, you know, access work. You know, no, no, car- no carpenters, no ability to create form work, you know, or, you know, support for arches. So... So, for example, with um, if you're building a nave, um, uh, what you would do is construct the timber. You would construct the sort of negative of the arch, if you like, underneath it. You would build the arch on top of that. You would wait for the mortar to set. You would remove the um, wedges at the base, and it would drop down. And then you would simply move it along to the next section, you know, the next bit along, and and just redo it that way. Yeah. So it's you know, these are clever. Clever well, then the wood, and then the wood disappears, and uh, you, you look at it now and scratch your head and wonder how on earth they did it. But they did it by bu- basically building another cathedral out of wood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then filling the filling yeah. in the stone. But uh, in, in in all it's amazing. In, it's amazing. In all large Gothic churches and cathedrals, they did build um, at sort of secret walkways so that they could cut down on the scaffolding, so that you know they could tr- um, carry materials up through the walls, if you like, and. You know, you can see that at Bristol and Salisbury and what have you. Well, Andrew, listen, I thought that has been really, really interesting. Utterly so fascinating. You. Yeah, and, thank you um, so much. Uh, and I've got to say, I loved your book. I, it's The Stonemason, A History of Building Britain by Andrew Zeminski. It, it's such a good read. It was so fascinating. And it's one of those books where, where it's, it's, a, it's an utter joy from start to finish. But at the end of it, you feel you just know a little bit more about things. And that's that's. <laughs> that's a really nice nice way to be oh. um so thank you and this is our last one of we yep. have ways of making you chalk yeah that's it well so to finish hope to finish with stone with chalk i think <laughs> yeah. yeah we've done quite well there james yeah it's almost like we planned yeah, this neat, isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but obviously we, no, we didn't <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we've just got to hope that next year we you know we don't have to do this yeah. and we can actually be do the real thing yeah yeah for real yeah 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 so long may you know soon hopefully the uh, normal times will return once more 
Well, thanks, Andrew. Um, really brilliant talking to you. Yeah, See you all soon. Pleasure. Cheerio. All the best. Uh, well, thank you, everyone, for listening this week. And uh, just to remind you that tonight is also the last Chalk Valley History Show.